Emerging Tech Insiders Podcast, episode 28. We're going to talk about the U.S. distributors versus Provi. We're going to talk about a fraud solution, a follow-up to a previous podcast. Maybe glass will be reduced or be gone from wine bottles. Is this a disaster? What's going on? Or is this the future? And a big DTC, well, a fairly big, a significant DTC merger. Is there something in the water? Is something going on? Back are insiders, Lori from Outshinery. Hi. Seb from Trolley. Good morning, boys and girls. And Jonathan from Bottle Books. Hey, everyone. <laughs> All right, let's start with the death of a glass bottle. Um, prices are increasing in glass bottles in the US. They've risen as much as 20% and sustainability is coming into play. Um, glass bottles are heavier and therefore more expensive and more um, energy climate consuming um, to ship uh, around the world. Um, I know um, in bottle books, um, a number of events, actually almost every event we're doing has some kind of sustainability angle. We've, we've oriented our events catalogs to, to really highlight this, to be optimized for sustainability. Um, Jonathan, tell us what you think. Um, are we going to be seeing less glass? I think acceptance is growing and alternative packaging. Um, and the thing that always drives acceptance is your pocketbook. Um, as well. So if your favorite product starts getting more expensive and there's a cheaper uh, cheaper way to enjoy it, um, that's what gets people to shift, at least in the, in the main area. Um, I mean, you're still going to have different perspectives probably on premium uh, wines, but for um, everyday drinker commercial wines, I think that's it's very likely um, uh, to shift. Um, I think it's also notable when you see writers like Francis Robinson calling out so California had a recent event where they put the bottle weights also on the in the website, um, and Jancis Robinson called that out in her Financial Times article um, uh, last weekend. Um, and so um, I think um, that hasn't been something that's been highlighted before, um, and they got some great press out of it. Um, and so that might encourage some other people to follow. Yeah, I think it's super interesting because. Like, you know, in the world of wine, obviously, like sustainability, carbon footprint, in the eye of the consumer and the industry, we often think of the wine growing, the wine making, like, you know, like the, because that's the part that we think of when we think of wine, like it's very easy to almost skip mentally the packaging. Um, but I think it's, I think it's coming, right? Like to just be like more, like, I can even see, not that we need yet another icon or logo or badge on the packaging, but like, hey, this is, you know, this wine is bottled in a container that is less detrimental to the environment or has a lower carbon footprint than a typical, uh, like I'm, I'm really curious about that. Like it's almost like the, the missing like the missing element, like the winemaking, wine growing, that's more and more like accepted, you know, like, oh, salmon safe and all of that, super important. But um, what's really interesting is like, I was looking at studies and about half, of uh, you know the wine bottle's carbon footprint is the packaging and this shipping around of the packaging back and forth. Um, so it's just like it's just like it makes such a an opportunity to you know walk the talk all the way. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of like you know 
romanticization, like wine is, you know, wine bottle. I mean, it used to be on four eyes and we used to be okay with it, right? Like it evolves, like nothing has to be like pretty static. On our channel side, like we're seeing more cans, wine in cans, more and more bag in a box, like we've discussed before, which is more predominant originally like in the Scandinavian market, but we're starting to see it more and more um, in the US and not necessarily like cheap, cheap wine. Of course, it's usually like more on the affordable, you know, like bracket. We're not putting like, um, you know, super pricey um, wine liquid, like wine in it, but really more and more. And also we're starting to see, um, I think it's a bit more novel, is like this aluminum can, the one that is just like lightweight. They look more, um, that they don't look like a wine can, like maybe like between an hybrid between like a, almost like a swell bottle, you know, like this water drinking bottle that you see like, people like walking around everywhere, but smaller version, uh, recyclable and to hold wine. So it looks a bit more elevated than a beer can in the like in the space. So that's something we've been noticing quite a bit. It's look, I think it's a really interesting topic because you both have touched a, a few interesting points, uh, namely how traditional the world of wine is. I, I am amongst the believers that we're not doing nearly enough as an industry to to target to attract to communicate to sell to the newer generations the new crowds hence the new packaging um, i'm not convinced look on the overall sustainability front uh, glass is still very well recycled versus the tetra packs and the everything else and the weight of the bottle the weight of the glass as a component of the weight of the overall bottle. Laurie, you mentioned 50%. I'm not sure that packaging is 50% because the liquid is actually still really heavy, even if it's packaged in a plastic bag. Oh, but keep in mind that the bottle moves more, right? That is a, is a total life. Like the bottle needs to go from empty from the glass manufacturer to the, I think that's the whole. Yeah, okay. Okay, that's a fair point. That's, I think that's the whole thing. One thing we know, for example, um, as a designer and even as a, you know, our chattery, silk screen bottle, you know, where the design is directly applied on the glass really cool like it's cool looking it's like a unique factor and it's like capable of a lot of things but i've seen a couple of wineries actually stepping away from it because it requires even more transport of glass because not only does the glass goes often to the winery then it goes to the screen people then it goes back so it's even more like transport so i think the the, the carbon footprint of the, the movement of that bottle is from the manufacturer all the way to the yeah. It's it moves a lot, even empty. That's one that like, we forget. It's very easy to forget that even that is the part of it. Uh, look, it's interesting because we have a we have a winery we're working with in Oregon, uh, and they have actually launched a bring your own bottle or bring back your bottles uh, plan. So as a member, you get your twelve bottles shipped, uh, and then if you bring your twelve bottles back, they're going to give you a discount, a bit of a deposit kind of a scheme. Um, and so ultimately, that's one way of trying to have the traditional bottle shape, keep the bottle, reduce your costs, uh, which I thought was marketing-wise very interesting, right? Everyone is aware that sustainability is a topic. Hey, club members, instead of just throwing them in the bin or in the recycling box, why don't you just bring them back when you next come and visit? And they clean them and they reuse them. Well, I think that's something that's been going on for like in Italy for ages. Like the oh, yeah? if you're like a restaurant, you'll come into the local winery 
um, bring in your jug, and it's basically like the <laughs> fuel nozzle that you like a growler. You, you take it, you, you pull it off the wall, you stick it in the container, pump it full of five or 10 liters of whatever you're needing to do. You pay for how much you pumped and then you take it with you uh, to the restaurant. So, so much for but romanticism. It, yeah, well, I mean, it's just part of the daily life in Italy, right? I mean, you you that's, you that's always have wine on the table and, um, and uh yeah, the everyday drinkers are even really great, right? Um, oh, yeah. But oh, yeah. in another in another discussion recently um, with a, a, a retailer that um, is uh, integrating our software into another one of their systems, it's a different team. And they one of the questions that came to us with was, "Do you have um, do you have a a question on bottle books to capture data on re, on um, returnable bottles?" Mm-hmm. I was like this is going to sound really weird, but that's a really novel question. <laughs> We've never heard that before in any sort of wine discussion, but to have the question yeah. in the system, say it's a returnable bottle. I said, well, you might want to check to see how that actually works in your geography. Um, Cause I'm not certain that we're that far on wines, but the fact that that is even coming up and we're thinking seriously about it. Yeah. I think it's also a sign of the times that we are actually like, it is possible to return a bottle. Yeah, correct. And look, I think overall, uh, Jonathan, you mentioned um, the overall price uh, of the glass affecting the price of the product. Um, And I think when you're looking at the greater sort of a food industry, when you're looking at uh, everything that's happening in Ukraine at the moment, uh, and fertilizer cost and growing cost, there is no doubt that the wine, the prices of wines will be going up in the next 12, 18 months. Uh, how quickly and how much really much, very much depends on everyone's individual strategies. Uh, but I think we're all going to start paying a bit more, especially given it's a luxury good. Um, so I don't think the glass in itself is going to be the only factor uh, in having a slightly higher price. And I don't know how much of a discount we would be able to get as a consumer mm-hmm. if it's packaged slightly differently. Because the value is look the value of the glass itself. How much is the producer going to save? I don't. I think it's minimal. I think it's minimal. And also, like there's this extra cost. Uh, you know, the filling bottling line um, may be like a the truck rolling in or the physical bottling line. You know, if it's a bigger winery, they don't feel like unless they rechange like the machinery and things like that that I'm not aware of. But like filling a can or filling a bag in a box is very different from filling you know, a glass bottle. So it's also like not that easy to necessarily implement for wineries. Like there is like the the risk and also like literally the logistics of like making it happen. Uh, we're seeing again, like with Channery, like some like co-packers specializing, trying to like provide like that service like for wineries, like especially like, you know, like cans with lining and like the pressure control and all that jazz. But it's also like this potentially even like an investment on some things that is, not necessarily like going to bring down, um, you know, to cost and not something that has been fully validated by the market yet. So I can, I can also see that like slowing the adoption, not like the, and the pocketbook at the end of the day, like, okay, how much? Yeah. That's just very interesting. It's, it's complicated on oh, the, yeah. on the application like making it happen. Uh, I think, look, I think cans, uh, cans speak to the newer generations and, and the on, uh, on the go kind of a consumptions. Uh, and cans are fairly lightweight. They're, they're also fairly well recycled. 
Um, so I think, yeah, it's a shame that the industry is, is not adopting them as fast as we probably should. Great. Let's move on to a big lawsuit in the U.S. Um, this is between Provi, who we covered in a previous episode. They provide a technology, a website, essentially, where um, you can, if you're a restaurant, you can order wines from your distributor and get them, uh, you know, oh, sorry, wines or, or spirits or whatever you want, um, and you can order them conveniently in an app. Um, well, Southern Glazer and R&DC um, decided, sent their um, uh, customers emails saying that they will no longer fulfill orders through Provi, and so Provi is suing them. This is, um, could be a massive lawsuit, could it not? Um, Jonathan, what's at stake here? I think it's, I mean, at stake is a potential redoing of all of the alcohol regulation in the U.S. I mean, it's it's challenging law. It, it's, it's, um, it is going into a space that has few legal precedents in recent years. And whether whatever the outcome is, there's now going to be recent legal precedents um, going one way or or the or the other. So it's either going to reaffirm the um, yeah the quasi monopoly of the wholesalers in the U.S. or it's going to radically break up the market and potentially destroy the entire three tier uh, system once and for all. So, um, but it's. Um, it's certainly going to be a milestone <laughs> milestone case. Do, do you have any hopes? <laughs> well, um, I mean, we're used to operating in countries around the world that have far less regulation than than the U.S. Um, the I think that it, you know, it's it's virtually. For many other markets, you're able to come in, like Italians or Italian producers are able to sell into Germany without a German importer. They might have better sales if they have a local importer or a local distributor, mm-hmm. but there's certainly nothing pre- preventing them from coming in and selling. In the U.S., um, all of that stops at the um, at the front door. You can't you can't easily as an as an Italian sell wine into the U.S. market on your own. Um, Dr. Lozen, for example, they've set up a U.S. organization on their own so that they can import the wines and produce in, in the U.S., but that's not every business is able to is able to set that up. Um, I think that you could have, um, I mean, I think it's hard to say, you can see how people operate and how businesses operate in other markets and, in, and sort of imagine what that could mean in the U.S. I mean, talking to um, one of our customers who owns large retail chains and markets around the world, um, uh, one of the people we knew went to their U.S. market and had dreams of building up and modernizing their wine part of the business. And uh, after a few months <laughs> in, they realized that their dreams is completely shattered, <laughs> that in their stores, they uh, can't even touch the wine in the shelves that um, they, the local importer comes, they inspect the shelves, they decide what's going to be stocked on the shelves, they then go to the manager, demand that they pay them up front, they take that money, then they go bring the, the drinks back, and then they put it on the shelf. This is a completely foreign concept oh, yeah. to oh, most yeah. people around the world. And it means that from a wine retail perspective, they have little incentive to do any sort of marketing. There's no 
way for them to improve pricing or do innovative things or get volume discounts because everything is so regulated. So they can maybe deal with fractions of a percent, whereas in Europe, they're used to dealing with like five to 10 percent, you know, fluctuations if they do a good job in in executing a campaign or bringing new product in. Um, Now, whether that's actually going to, you know, if the lawsuit's successful, is that going to be one of the potential, is it going to be the outcome versus the flexibility? Who knows? But um, it, it would certainly, it certainly, if that's the outcome, it's going to be groundbreaking. Yeah. The world's going to change super, super quick. And or call me a cynic. There. Sorry? Call, call me a cynic. I, I doubt. Oh, yeah. I doubt. It's going to end up being settled like 90% of lawsuits. Oh, really? Uh, what, what, and look, it's unfortunate because I, I really agree with you when you say that uh, regulations is so stringent and so tight in the US, so tricky and complex to navigate that it, it prevents innovation. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, that is a real challenge. Um, look, on the flip side, what I find this lawsuit as, uh, as being quite interesting is, is not just on how complex and how hard, but how the incumbents yes. are now moving in the tech. Yeah. The incumbents are now saying, okay, we can see technology is required in our supply chain. So this technology there, we don't want to use it. We want to build our own. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that is absolutely fascinating. Look, I'm I'm an absolute believer that the future beyond the future belongs to or the future has to be direct from producer. I'm an absolute believer that the future is direct from producer. Um, but ultimately, it's such a huge market in the US that this, this amount of complexity, this amount of lobbying money, this amount of influence and regulation, and there's some serious dollars invested on both sides. Yeah. And I think that's also like, yeah, what strikes me is just like those are, you know, like obviously we're talking like a glazer. If I'm pronouncing that right, and Provi, Provi that recently acquired or merged, whatever you want to call it, like 750, right? That's just like so. It's like it's too like it's not David versus Goliath, like not not totally. Like they both have like weight and and money to you know to push that because yeah. So like I don't know, like I don't know about the settle. Like I don't know if we should take bets or something like that. But like it's it's definitely interesting because it's. Is that both big players and incumbent versus new player and yeah, both with, well, and, yeah. and they're both basically fighting for their lives, right? Yeah. So exactly. you have this, you have this uh incumbent who was probably already a bit skeptical uh of um seven fifty before, um, but they were perceived as a smaller player, probably not quite the threat. And then all of a sudden you have this massive deal go through and they're like, Oh, okay. Uh, they could come and erode our business uh, over the next few years. And then on the other hand, you have this massive deal that just went through and they're like, oh, one of our, one of our revenue streams just stopped. Um, mm-hmm. And so they are both highly motivated and like for existing, for, for, for significant reasons to take this to one oh, yeah. conclusion or the or the end or the other 
And look, it's it's worth mentioning uh, at a at a broader, um, I mean, US-based macro level. Uh, Pro-V as a business has also received, uh, they've raised capital, they've received investment from different uh, investors. Um, one of them, uh, I know for a fact, uh, uh, Bessemer Ventures, uh, they're definitely, look, all of their investments are very much in line with trying to integrate the entire supply chain. Um, so a lot of delivery, a lot of production software, a lot of, um, so ultimately, there is definitely a, a seriously fragmented and dysfunctional supply chain in the world of alcohol and food generally in the US. Uh, and there's a lot of money being invested towards trying to fix that, trying to change that, trying to capitalize on it. Whether Pro-V being sued by uh, by the other guys is going to change anything? I don't think so. I don't think so. Total cynic. All right, Laurie, let's move on to um, wine fraud. We had a, another podcast um, uh, before talking a lot about wine fraud, and there is new technology in the market. Estacion Enologica de Haro, um, a public and governmental laboratory in Spain's major wine growing region, La de Rioja, has introduced Brunker's Biospins Nuclear Magnetic Resonance Spectroscopy analysis. <laughs> it looks um, like we're in like a comic book, like you know, adamantium something something, like Marvel, like the Avengers are coming with like a new metal. <laughs> so we talked a lot about you know tracking the supply chain, this, that, and that. Um, is this maybe the way to tackle wine fraud? If if this works, that they could just analyze the wine and tell you whether it's it's the right thing or not. I mean, I'm no scientific so scientist, sorry, so I can't say, but like, it looks like a like very like interesting like approach. You know, it's just like something that a co like a collaborator not here on the podcast today would be able to like speak more uh, about. But it's um it's just interesting that it comes from Spain personally, like it's not a market that we don't hear that often enough like so that I appreciate that. And also like the fact that it's the Yora region, which if we go back to fraud way back, you know, recall how all the Riora bottles, so you have like the, the cage, like the netting around the, the bottle, which was an invention, I don't know if it's 100 years old or something like that, to help protect already the liquid in the bottle. And I really kind of appreciated how history is not repeating itself, but evolving. Like they are the one coming up with a solution again to protect the liquid in the bottle in a more in a less obvious way um, than it is the gilded cage uh, around it. Mm -hmm. Seb, what do, you, like, what do you think? Is this a future? Is it how? Uh, look, we... it's, 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 it's a fascinating topic because, uh, look, I, I, there, there is a significant amount of fraud, right? It's been established as a, as a good amount of fraud in the industry. Um, I'm still questioning how much do consumers really care Collectors do. How much do cons the general consumer and the general consumption of, of wine in the industry really care? That's one thing. And the other thing is, look, reading about this, this magnetic resonance thing, um, they do need to first fingerprint the product. They need to have an, a genuine sample to compare it to. Uh, and so ultimately, you're basically saying, look, this is not applicable to most producers on the planet. They will not send their wine for them to be fingerprinted just for the sake of it. Um, 
And so how much is that really going to prevent fraud moving forward? Oh, look, it's a cool little tech. It's a cool little tech. Um, I don't think it's going to be an absolute groundbreaker eliminator of fraud in the industry. Uh, on the flip side, look, there was a number of blockchain for wine things which were which were discussed. Uh, I am fairly interested in, in the movement of fake news uh, and Web 3.0, and and having the authenticity of the, a piece of data to be confirmed, to be verified. And I think that is far more likely to have a significant impact in the world of wine. So that when you buy a bottle and someone is telling you, this is what's in this bottle and I'm signing for it because I know exactly where it came from. Ultimately, this is far more likely to have a broader adoption and a broader sort of um, improvement or end result on fraud, I think. More than you know, the Bluetooth widgets and and the the chemical signatures and you know, and we know we know that the drink is crazy complex in terms of molecules. Um, so you know, up to, yeah. until about five years ago, we thought it's impossible to mix two things and have a third thing. Well, now we know you can pretty much copy wine, right? Make it up, and it tastes okay. Um, so yeah, I think I think the drink is crazy complex. So for us to be able to have a one one fits all kind of a solution, I'm not. Well, this, I I'm think convinced. I think it depends on how this technology is is implemented because um, in some ways this is the most realistic yes approach that we've discussed on this uh, podcast towards targeting widespread fraud, not fine wine, but um, but more more broad like general market fraud. Um, and one of the reasons that I I think that this can have a role to play, maybe not in how they're doing it necessarily, but um, uh, in, I think I've told the story a few times that um, Jacques Wine Depot in Germany, uh, discussion with them years ago, it sticks with me that they every new shipment of wine they get from the winery, they test against the original wines that they uh, contracted to buy. And they have found quality issues, and then have discovered also that the wine was resold to somebody else down the street, and they they were able to detect that this that this they, in this case it wasn't necessarily explicitly fraud, but it was a defective wine that somebody didn't want to take back, and or that's one way of also explaining fraud <laughs> that it was just a defective <laughs> wine, right? But um, but I think when you have somebody who's able to do that at scale, they're not going to test every single bottle, but they are going to spot spot check a pallet. Yeah. And yeah. so you are going to catch those individual, you're going to, you're going to be able to pinpoint that a little bit more. It's more difficult to get through. And at the, and so, you know, going back, this kind of ties back to what you're saying, Seven, about you think uh, that D to C is the way of the future. This only works when there is a good blend of, of non D to C as well, because you're never going to, you're going to want somebody in the local market who has a reputation on the line, like uh, that. That's that wants to be. You know, Jacques is one of the largest just wine wine shops in Germany, and they want to have a good reputation for their wine, and they're able to spend money to keep that reputation or invest in that reputation. Um, and the volumes are big enough that financially it can make sense to do these spot checks, which at small volumes. Yeah. 
it's it's not going to be quite the same so um it's it's a it's interesting but it's one of the more more of the more like one of the more realistic options to combat mass market fraud and look there's there's a financial question right in in the mass produced wines uh, I think we talked in a previous episode, we talked about um, Yellowtail being copied. Um, and ultimately, if Yellowtail was copied, you know, 5% of the time, it was a fake Yellowtail, uh, at, at the, the value price point of that bottle, what is this problem really worth fixing? Is this really financially worthwhile as a problem to fix? I don't know. I don't know. I agree. Look, in terms of quality control, yeah, 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 hundred percent, hundred percent. Interesting topic. Very interesting topic. And it always and has to be, like, I think also for the empty fraud, there always has to be that in that some like neutral party or a third party involved. So uh, it's it's even though you have trust in this producer like there's entire businesses that make their business out of just being the third party right yep. they um and, and look i, I think the words companies are in some way the same the same thing it's it's a third party commenting on the on the product um that have enough people believing in what they're doing that they're able to build a business model out of yeah, yeah look it's a, it's a very interesting very interesting oh. Am I still on? Oh, I've kind of lost my audio here. <laughs> um, I think I think it's just very interesting because ultimately, the um, the the comment in the middle or, or the, the 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 point of trust in the middle is probably ultimately what technology will get rid of, right? Because technology will be able to tell you wherever your wine came from. Yeah. Whoever made your wine, it doesn't matter what you're telling me in the middle as a consumer, as a retailer buying a batch. I know exactly where it came from and what went inside of it. And it's certified and it's traceable. And it's so that middle point, I think there's a, I think the Jonathan, what you're suggesting is that there's a level of marketing and sales commentary in the middle, which has value. But to have a retailer to say, you, my customer, can trust everything in this shop. I think this is becoming irrelevant because consumers will soon be scanning a QR code and they'll have a full chain, a full traceability, a full history. And if it says it's organic and for any reason that producer has been banned as organic or biodynamic, the consumer just won't buy again. So the market will wean itself off of bad actors. You know what I mean? I think, I think. Well, um, we had a merger um, in the direct-to-consumer um, space or software space. Um, Commerce 7 added VineSpring and its 560-plus clients. Um, Seb, you are the CEO, leader, founder <laughs> of one of the most advanced uh, direct-to-consumer um platforms for wineries i know that you must have lots of thoughts on this so we're going to go to you first what do you think 
Um, look, it's interesting. I know, look, it's a small industry, right? Everyone in the world of wine tech, we all know each other. Uh, I know I know the founders of every single other business, effectively. Um, and it's really interesting because at least we're seeing interest in trying to standardize on technology. Uh, we're seeing that. So Andrew, Commerce 7, uh, they're very keen on trying to have their tech to be used in different places. The one challenge I see as part of this is that ultimately as a consumer, and we're not talking about the producer, we're talking about the winery, uh, the number of options are running very, very low, right? So we have, I, I kind of see the industry as having two broad categories of technologies, old technologies and new technologies. And the old boys, look where you had you had to install it. I'm not going to name anyone, but there's a bunch of really old tech that were built in the 90s, 2000, 2010s kind of thing. Uh, just forget about those guys. Moving forward to new technologies, the number of options are now going down. So the producers are basically going to have one out of you know a handful of options, which I don't see as being very good uh, for the producer. Um, but at the same time, look, I mean, there's no doubt uh, as a, as a uh, market uh, penetration, uh, Commerce 7 is trying to have, they're moving really fast. They're very savvy in the industry, right? They're very good in, in, in identifying opportunities. Um, and they're just trying to just own the entire market. As simple as that. Same as we, we, we mentioned um, the incumbents and distribution. So we talked about Grazia uh, and, and Pro-V. I have no doubt that the incumbents will fight back. I have no doubt that as much as Commerce 7 is trying to own a large chunk of the market, everyone else is going to sadly play catch up, but they're going to play catch up hard and they've got capital and they've also got significant uh, customer base, right? So Commerce 7 is still only just, I think it's 7% uh, market yeah. penetration. It's, it's, it's still nothing in the scheme of things, you know what I mean? No, it's just like it's just kind of interesting because it's an argument against consolidation so that it's you know like less fragmented as an industry like you know like you can imagine like having less players should technically simplify the communication in between like different silos or also be exactly the opposite like the more you you know have this like bigger temple like you can just like you know protect and be like well just like we've seen with the lawsuit you know like it's just, like it's just maybe it's just like we don't need to talk to anyone we're big enough to just like impose um yeah. what's coming commerce 7 is just not there and i think commerce 7 as well is um still like in some like north american market like south africa like this like sometimes we tend to forget as well the the world i mean most of the world is producing some <laughs> uncle in some shape or form so there's just like such such a potential yeah. Uh, personally, me, I was a little bit surprised. Like, it didn't seem like a big number. Like, 560. They've been around, like, for, like on the Vine Spring. Um, um, Vine Spring. It's interesting because Vine Spring, uh, the owner, is a winemaker, uh, and from what I know, I, I spoke to him a couple of years ago, and um, his priority was making wine. And I think from what I read, he's managed to sort of build a pretty decent support team. Yeah. Um, which, you know, Commerce 7 is basically saying, our support is going to be better because we just bought them. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah. Um, but the whole point is 
they were not a technology play. Got it. He was making wine and just happened to make a couple of uh, pieces of software. And he basically, VineSpring basically owns their region. They have every single yeah. one, just about. <laughs> but outside, VineSpring, okay. I'm pretty confident saying VineSpring doesn't have okay. anyone in Australia or in South Africa or in Italy. Mm -hmm. or, yeah. Very unlikely. Very unlikely. Gotcha. Gotcha. And look, the I, all these numbers, all these numbers I'm seeing, uh, Commerce 7 is publicly saying they're now bigger than Wine Direct. Uh, and VineSpring saying 500 customers. Uh, when you look at overall numbers in the US and the number of wineries in that region, yeah. uh, I don't know what to believe anymore. I don't know what to yeah, believe. Like, I have a problem with, with the math. I mean, this is not my battle to pick. Like, it doesn't matter, but like, it just, it doesn't seem to add up. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> but look, overall, as I was saying, I think uh, it, it's, it's good that we're going to have a slightly more, they're trying to standardize the technology. Great. Um, I, I, I don't want to speak ill of, of Common Seven and Andrew, but I think everyone in the industry who's worked with him know how he operates. Uh, and I've seen a few disasters stories in the world of food, right, where consolidation happened and then prices went up three folds. And again, the producer ended up footing the bill. Uh, and from my perspective, it's, it's really where things are, need to fundamentally shift. The entire supply chain, everyone selling software, everyone is trying to squeeze the producer at the other end. That's not my attitude. I think this is just fundamentally wrong. You know what I mean? And I've seen too many horror stories. But it is going back to like podcasts we talked about a few years ago and just more of that, or not you, years ago, <laughs> a few months ago. Um, um talking about um in like the financial situation in the wine tech industry and looking at the investments the past two years i think that whether like how regardless of how somebody might feel about like also this particular um um acquisition it's it's it is contributing to just the number of transactions that are happening in general in the wine tech space and so um, it's it's good to see businesses and and money changing hands. It gives investors confidence that they're, you know, you're not just going yeah, to, investing in a wine tech company is not a hobby. Uh, it's not a hobby investment, but it's actually a serious investment because there is a path to get money out, and money is, yeah. you know, there is transactions pass, uh, taking place. So. Um, I think it's it's good to see that transactions are continuing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's 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 worth saying it's still it's still very 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 small, right? So the the wine tech uh, amount of investments in the U.S. versus food tech versus entire investment sort of venture capital kind of a scene, it's still minute. But I absolutely agree with you. It's 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 a massive shift forward in the last 12, 18 months. Um, wine startups or, or wine-driven technologies are now seeing some amount of capital support, yeah. Well, that was episode 28 of the Wine Tech Insiders podcast. I'd like to thank all of our insiders, Seb from Trolley, Jonathan from Bottle Books, and Lori from Outshinery. See you all again in a few weeks. Thanks, Well everyone. done, guys. Ciao. <laughs>